Welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. It's normally one of the most difficult parts of the story to unpack, especially in a short little while. But um, is there something interesting about that story? You're kind of tracking with it? Yeah. You are? Great. Um, because that, that's kind of the preview of the story that really unfolds in the person of Jesus. Now when Jesus in Matthew 13 verse 35 says, I come to reveal to you things that has been hidden from the very foundation of the earth. In other words, these are processes that you have not been aware of. Maybe that kind of links in with Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're involved in. We're so deeply involved in this cycle that we simply had no clue why we act the way we act, why we are the way we are, because we're so deeply embedded in them. You don't know what you don't know, as uh, uh, Andy said. And so... When Jesus comes, it's, uh, uh, and his whole life seems to be a recapitulation or a, a summary of human history. I'm going to reveal to you things hidden from the foundation of the earth. And, and actually, when he even speaks about his own death, he doesn't speak about it as a unique occurrence. Now, I know in our theology, this is very unique. But when Jesus speaks about his own death, he says, actually, this is part of a pattern that has always happened. Uh, you have always killed the messengers and the prophets, etc. And it's not going to be any different. Yeah, you're going to once again not want to hear and when the stories become just too irritating, you're going to silent, silence this victim with the hope of we never have to listen to him again. <laughs> Are they in for a surprise? We like your story. And so all the gospels seem to be racing towards the the passion narrative like more more than half of the stories is about those last few days and what is unfolding there and um, i'm so glad jesus didn't stand in front of all the disciples and said now listen carefully i don't want four versions of this story but he, he kind of knew that we are dealing with a truth that uh, just facts aren't going to capture. <laughs> there needs to be this, these different views and relationship that enriches the understanding from, from different perspectives. And so the tension as the story races towards the Passion Week, you can... You can feel the tension building because Jesus is born within a very volatile situation. Welcome, wonderful people. So good to see you. You made it. Um, so Jesus is born within this very volatile situation in which Rome is the occupying power 
the Jews, are, you know, they hate the empire and they've got factions amongst themselves. They hate the different factions and, and it's just conflict. This is the original chaos that every myth starts in, that tensions are rising and trouble is coming. Either everyone's going to kill everyone or we're going to find a scapegoat. <laughs> and, um, you know, as the, as the tensions continue to rise and the story continue to unfold and we're moving towards this Passover feast where Jews from all over the world are going to come to Jerusalem and the Roman Empire just knows this is trouble. We've been here before. Now, when they all come together, they're not just going to fight against one another. They might just find a way to turn their anger onto us. So get the soldiers ready. Get everyone ready. This is a weekend of trouble coming. Um, and in the midst of Jesus trying to unveil what's actually happening and remember, this is a time where there's no developed theology of original sin. There's no developed theology of the fall. And so I think it's very significant when Jesus starts speaking in John 9, what I think is his understanding of the human condition that we need to be saved from. Remember, he walks with his disciples past the man that was born blind. And the disciples asked the question, who sent, this man or his parents? And in their question, you can understand their theology. Suffering, the fact that this man is not a full part of human society, it's got something to do with either he messed up or his parents messed up. Somewhere there's a, a curse in the bloodline. Somewhere there's something funny in the but, but people don't just suffer. They suffer because somehow we think they deserve it. <laughs> and so Jesus so skillfully, so shockingly, says this suffering has got nothing to do with sin. What? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now that should pop up a lot of questions. <laughs> what the heck? We thought we had the story neatly worked out. We know the cause and effect. The effect is suffering, the, the cause is sin. And you're just messing up our whole theology here. But Jesus says, if the work of God is to be done, let us do it. In other words, your responsibility is not to work out what caused the suffering. Your responsibility is to bring relief, is to bring healing, is to bring restoration. But the, this whole story has got so many little literary um, pointers to the very origin or the beginning of the human condition. The man was born blind, okay, from the very birth of this man, 
from the very birth of humanity, there's something fundamentally um, wrong that causes suffering. Secondly, when, when Jesus, you know, eventually uh, works with the man, he spits onto the ground and he makes Hadam, which is a play on the word for Adam, Adama, the mud. Again, we taken back to the very origins of humanity. Later on when the man speaks, they say, we have never heard such a thing since the beginning of the world. No one was, never has a man born blind being healed. So there's about four or five passages throughout John 9 that speaks about the birth of man, the origin of man since the beginning of this world. We've never heard this. So can you see that Jesus is maybe unveiling something fundamental to the human condition beyond just that incident? And okay, so Jesus uh, spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eyes, says, go wash, and the man goes away and he's healed. And he comes back and the town is in uproar. This man has been, been healed. And this is a bit concerning for the Sahedrin. So they, they call him in and ask him, so what happened? And he said, well, I was born blind. And the man came and he just tells them the story. They don't like what they hear. So they, they say this, this can't be... Um, send him out, call in his parents. <coughs> and his parents, it's quite clear, they were afraid because the Sahedrin, they all of them knew already, they have made the decision that whoever acknowledges Jesus will be cast out will, of the fellowship. They won't be part of this group anymore. And so they call the parents and the parents says, all we know is he is our son, he was born blind, and now he sees we don't know anything beyond that. <laughs> we don't know who did what, or when, or why, or... Ah, so in desperation, they call the man back again. And um, they say, tell us again what happened. And maybe because this man was an outcast for so much of his life, Maybe he developed a bit of a thicker skin, a bit of an attitude. And so he tells them, so why do you want to hear this story again? Are you interested in becoming his disciples? <laughs> and they just freak out. They say, we know who we follow. We follow Moses, you know. God won't listen to sinners. He says, Oh, that's very interesting. You know, according to your own theology, God doesn't listen to sinners. But seeing that this man healed me, how can he then be a sinner? You know, and he makes an argument that is far too logical for their liking. And um, they cast him out again. And... You remember, he's never seen Jesus at this stage. He kind of might have heard a voice, but Jesus wasn't there when he went to wash and clean his eyes. And, and Jesus, isn't it amazing how Jesus always uh, 
meets us in that place of being an outcast. Of, you know, Jesus comes again while he's in this situation and he um, says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, Lord, who is he that I may believe? And Jesus says, I am he. But then Jesus makes this most amazing statement and he said, for this reason the Son of Man came. Um, that the blind may see and that those who think they see um, might be blind. And some of the Pharisees overhears this and they say, wait a minute, are you maybe speaking about us? And he says, if only you acknowledged your blindness, you would not be at fault or you would not be so blind. But now that you insist we see, your blindness remains. Now, here I want to take an opportunity to redefine sin. <laughs> you see, the disciples' idea of sin in their question in the beginning is, sin is something you do that causes you to be excluded from full participation in humanity. It's something that causes you to suffer. It's something that causes you to, to be excluded. But Jesus' understanding of what actually happens is your sin is the blindness that causes you to exclude. <laughs> See, the sin of this Sahedron was that they continued to just cause the suffering of others by their exclusion. There is a fundamental blindness within humanity that wants to define their identity by whom they are against. <laughs> that wants to define their... Um, security by who's in and who's out and Jesus comes and he exposes this as the very foundational blindness that has caused societies throughout the world to always define themselves by who they against who they at war at who's not with them who's against them and he's going to introduce us a totally different way of being human. A way of being human that does not exclude the outcast, but includes them. But that's an interesting little in, uh, interlude as we continue on the story of Jesus, because now we're getting closer to the Passover feast and people are coming from all over. The tensions are continuing to grow. And even after this, now, then he goes and he, oh, my goodness, he, he um, heals Lazarus. And, and this is just the last straw, uh, raises Lazarus. And, uh, and the Pharisees come together and they say, we, we just don't know what to do. I mean, the whole world seems to be going after them. And, and this is a real problem because if the crowds with them, they might turn against us. You know, we're either part of the crowd or we become the scapegoat. <laughs> and, and so Caiaphas stands up and he says, you guys, you don't know anything about what's happening. Let me make this clear to you. 
It is better that one man should die for the nation than for the whole nation to die. In other words, Caiaphas reveals what the myths hide. And this is what was so beautiful as Rene Gerard started comparing the scriptures to other origin myths. The other origin myths are always written by the survivors. And so the community is always innocent. The scapegoat's always guilty. And, uh, and there's certain passages that is well hidden in those texts. When he started reading the scriptures, he, he understood that it tells this fundamental human story again, but it actually pauses at every point where the myths try to hide the truth. It pauses to unveil what is actually happening. And so what is unveiled here is a message so fundamental. It's this idea that the innocence or the guilt of the scapegoat is really arbitrary. It means nothing for the community. <laughs> What's important for the status quo is that we maintain the current order. And he's going to die one way or the other. The decision has been made. Um, Find the charges, find the reasons, you know, that's kind of just part of the process. But we've made up our mind. We want to preserve our order. And this troublemaker is going to be removed from the community because obviously God is the God of our order. God's not the God of this chaotic new ideas that's just spreading and causing this disruption. God's the God of our order. That is what all the myths tells us, that this order is established by our God and chaos is evil. And should there be a little bit of chaos, we know how to deal with it. Overwhelming violence. And so the story races towards the cross. The, all the different factions aren't quite agreed now. Now we've got agreement again between the Pharisees. We know who our chosen victim are. We're looking for opportunity. But there's still there's lots of people that likes him. Lots of people that are not quite united yet. Um, even at the time, you know, the night before, uh, Peter says, oh, you know, we will, we will fight with you. We, uh, and a few hours later, he denies that he knows Jesus. Now, obviously, if we were there, we would have stood with Jesus. I mean, we, we won't ever be part of the crowd, would we? <laughs> we would stand up for what's right and true. <laughs> um, but I guess this is what the scripture so skillfully unveils. The power of the crowd is where the satanic works very powerfully. You see the kind of opportunity that accusation might have between two people is greatly exemplified when that accusation takes place in a crowd when we can all agree 
that we know who and what the problem is. So that we can rid our community of evil. If only evil was so simple as to be located in some people, that we can separate them from society, hopefully one day we'll eternally separate them, and we'll all be happy because evil will be gone. But evil is not found as some kind of metaphysical quantity that only occurs in some people. Evil is part of this process, part of this relational process in which desires are either twisted into rivalry or they are those beautiful opportunities to connect with the difference of another and rejoice in it. And so we, we come right to the cross. Can you see how Jesus is retelling human stories that occurred in every civilization? Every nation up to that day was formed by the same process of crisis, sacrifice, unity. And he's, he's retelling that same story. And it is out of those stories that our ideas of the gods were born. That the gods are the gods who justifies our violence to bring unity to our community. The gods are those who, who stands behind us to help us identify the evil in our community and separate them from us and exclude them. Those are the gods we created in our image and our likeness. Jesus is going to bring us back to that very foundational event to show us what actually happened. See, throughout all the scriptures, the cross is seen as the place in which God overcame evil. For this purpose, the Son of Man came, to destroy the works of the devil. And, and Corinthians, all that places, that this is where the principalities and powers met their defeat. But don't you find it strange that if all the theology points towards the cross as the place in which evil was overcome, how strange is it that the devil doesn't play any role in this drama as we move towards the cross? It's almost as if the very form of the satanic is changed in the process of its exposure. <laughs> but he's actually going to show us what is evil. Who is God? And who are you? And he does that by bringing us back to the founding murder that gave birth to our ideas about God. Now, C.S. Lewis, you know, in the time when we began discovering all the mythology and all the ideas from different cultures and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there was a huge kind of uproar in the Christian world because people who study literature says, well, these stories have always been with us. It's the same story that we find in the scripture. And it was a bit challenging for the Christian community because we thought we had a very unique story. But C.S. Lewis then made this, who knew the literature of the world better than most people, he made this amazing statement that I think it's actually a very good fit. But instead of being some 
unknown victim in an unknown time that produced some results, what we now have is a very real victim, a very real story that unveils the actual events. You see, when, <laughs> when we come to this moment where we again rid our community of, of the problem that's caused chaos, well, we crucify Jesus. And, and you know, it is so powerful because um, even just a week before, his death. Jesus tells this story to a group of Jews and he says, um, you know, there was a landlord that had a big plot of land and he gave it to his servants and said, tell it and I will send somebody every year to get the um, reward. And he would send people, I think it's Matthew 24, and every time he would send people, they'd kill the servant. And eventually he said, uh, I'll send my son. Surely they will hear him. And he sends his son. You see, the father doesn't say, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll kill him. Um, no, the father's purpose for sending his son is that you should hear him. <laughs> but what do they do? They kill him. And he asks the audience, so what should be done? And they are all in agreement. That is horrible. They should be utterly destroyed. So this reminds remind me if I don't conclude this story, but this is the place where it happens. Then Jesus goes to the cross. Um, here we are. All the factions have been united. We've chosen our scapegoat. Obviously, God is on our side. And even the people who had a bit of faith in Jesus... They now look at this and say, surely this, is, this couldn't have been God's anointed. And so we considered him stricken and smitten by God, according to Isaiah. We looked at him and said, maybe he was a false prophet all along. And well, eventually the truth comes out. And... Uh, that idea that everyone's now united and the scapegoat is being murdered. And beautiful how in the passages before that, how it says the Father handed Jesus over. You see, why does the Father hand Jesus over? Precisely because he's got nothing to do with the violence to come. Precisely because this is where God is most absent in the unjustified violence of man. You see, what's happening on the cross is suddenly in the resurrection, it's going to hit us that we weren't actually with God exercising our violence against the innocent. Actually, it is God who suffers our violence. Actually... <laughs> this whole thing is being exposed for the process that works. Now, after Jesus is killed, put in the there is the magical peace that always follows. The whole city, the uproar, the drama is over. We can all 
live in peace. Obviously, the 12 disciples who's given up their lives, who's developed a real friendship with this person, are devastated. They've lost a friend, but there's also great fear because if they've taken him away, maybe we are next. And so they're in their upper room, locked up. And Jesus appears. <laughs> the resurrected Jesus. I mean, what a surprise that is. Because we don't, we don't want to hear from our victims. That's why we kill them. But when Peter starts preaching, and he preaches to the same group of Jews who Jesus spoke to a week before, who out of their own mouth said, those people should be utterly destroyed. And, and Peter says, this Jesus, whom you murdered. Now listen to the language. Whenever the apostle speaks about the death and resurrection of Christ, they make certain that we understand who did what. This Jesus, whom you murdered, God made him alive. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised him up. Man does the killing. God does the making alive. Now what have we done? We've kind of painted the whole story with our pagan myth again and said, no, 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 this was all God's doing. God needed blood in order to enable him to forgive and the wages of sin is death. And so somebody had to die. And, and can you two come up here quickly? Thank you for joining me. Stand here. <laughs> there we go. And, and kind of what we imagined is, um, you know, the father throughout the Old Testament was trying to correct us, but getting a little bit more and more agitated, more and more angry uh, uh, at humanity. And... Um, Eventually, the son saw, he, the son knowing his dad thought, oh, the old man's getting ready to beat somebody up. <laughs> and um, he kind of steps in the gap and says, Dad, instead of beating humanity to death, why don't you have a go? Here I am. And even theologians who still understand atonement in those terms would agree that what this theory of atonement says is that Jesus came to save us from the Father. Can you see that there's something wrong with that thinking? That kind of says God has been our problem all along. But thank God for the nice part of God. The, the Jesus part. Thank you, you dear. Um, the, the Jesus part to kind of, we're comfortable with Jesus, but we just hope he doesn't leave the room <laughs> and leave us alone with that other part of God. That's, that whole understanding of atonement is radically deconstructed, exposed by a God that says, I will rather suffer your violence than participate in it. I will rather suffer your injustice than enforce upon you your idea of justice. Because what is our human ideas of justice? 
The blood of Abel, all the blood of the victims have always cried for one thing, vengeance. We want things to be set right. That's justice. The wages of your sin is death. You must get what you deserve. And so in our way in which we then interpret justice is that's the place where God finally gets the payment for, for the injustice that's been done to him and, and he's satisfied and now he can be nice to us again. Huh. Colossians 2 from verse 14 tells us that there is something that God nailed to that cross but it was not his son. You see, what God nails to that cross is the very law with its requirements against us. It is the very system that says you must get what you deserve. It is that system that God nails to the cross when at the moment when we deserve death most, when we are guilty beyond doubt, it is at that moment where our rejection of Him is absolute that his acceptance of us is revealed as he prays, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Because they don't know what, they, what they're doing. See, maybe part of the story that I hope to unveil in this session is that we have been caught up in a transactional understanding of atonement for too long. Maybe instead of it being a transaction, it has always been a revelation. <laughs> it's a revelation of who God really is, who we really are, and how evil operates. And so it is in the resurrection where Peter starts saying, this Jesus whom you murdered, God has raised him up, but those Jews are cut to the heart, not because they're very excited, because they scared spitless <laughs> they are in this moment their own judgment is ringing in their ears they should be destroyed utterly we thought we were participating with God but here, here God raises him up and then it says and he made him judge we don't want our victim to be the judge i mean this is zombie apocalypse on a new scale that we've never seen before you the, the one you murdered is back and uh, he's looking for you <laughs> see this is why in hebrews 12 such a powerful verse that says the blood of jesus speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of every other victim cried for retribution, retributive justice. God comes to introduce us to a whole new kind of justice. God's justice is not to give you what you deserve. God's justice is to give you whatever you need to be restored, to be healed, to be made whole. That is God's justice. And so when we, uh, I was just in a church in Bournemouth where the whole idea of pleading the blood began 
Like the old Pentecostal churches, that's their origin in that little church in Bournemouth, the Apostolic Faith Mission and Elam, and the whole lots of, and that's where the, that where it began. Where somebody said, "I bleed the blood." I bleed. It's still happening. And what what I just so appreciate is that what makes the blood of Jesus powerful is not that it is some magical metaphysical substance that we can conjure up to to just give us a momentary feeling but it is its message and its message is here where we finally come to have murdered one that was undoubtedly innocent because we have our doubts about the other victims I mean maybe they didn't deserve death but they've done something wrong you know (laughs) But here we come and we we have no doubt that our victim was innocent. And it is right here where we face to face with the reality of our guilt that Peter presents to them their victim coming towards them with forgiveness, with arms open wide, with embrace, with a revelation that you can never do anything that makes you more acceptable and more loved to me. (laughs) That I embrace you when you're at your worst. (laughs) That we suddenly come face to face with a God who doesn't participate in our retributive violence. But the God who suffers it, but despite suffering it, offers forgiveness. Does that interpretation of the founding murder have an opportunity to change our minds about who God is and what God is? Instead of using this occasion to once again project our own violence and our own evil into, onto our imaginary gods, It's not us who did it. And unfortunately, that is how some theologies have interpreted the cross. We've got nothing to do with Jesus' death. This was God's plan all along. (laughs) Isn't that how we've interpreted it? Uh, But if if we are to read the gospel, this is the point where we actually realize where God is in our violence where God is in this evil. God is always the one suffering it, not dishing it out. And so that is part of Paul's conversion. You see, the the reason why Paul turns against his interpretation of the Jewish faith and actually finds a new way of explaining it is because he perceived within his religion something that still justified violence. Remember when Jesus appears to Paul, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, I'm not persecuting anyone. I'm doing sacred work. I'm pursuing these heretics. I'm dragging them out of their hiding places, putting them in prison. I'm doing God's work. And God says, no, Paul, you are persecuting me. And when Paul understands that his religion actually still justified violence, 
he rejects that religion for a new interpretation. I think it's time all over this world for people to reject whatever religion they are part of that still justifies violence. Whether that religion goes under the banner of Islam or Christianity. <laughs> to reject a religion that justifies our evil is an act of worship to the God revealed in Jesus who goes with the outcasts, suffers with the outcasts, and his only object is to bring healing and restoration where he finds himself. And so, oh glory, here Jesus enters into the depth of our story. These stories that have become so part of our community that we couldn't even remember where they come from. You know how a story works. You kind of hand it over. And long after the actual events that gave birth to the story is forgotten, all we are left with is the story. And the story tells us about angry gods, about how we need to sacrifice, what we need to do. And... And the only way to actually change our understanding of that story, because just argument won't work. <laughs> the only way to actually change our understanding of that story is to enter right into the heart of that story. To take us back to the very founding events that gave birth to our ideas. And that that origin unveils what, what was actually happening. And so sacrifice is subverted. Sacrifice is not the stuff we give to God to make him happier, to appease his anger. Um, when Jesus speaks about his death to his disciples, he says, no greater love has any man than to give himself for the benefit of the others. And neither was he forced. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay down of my own accord. This is not even what God demanded. This might have been part of what God, what Jesus understood as it's the only way they're going to get it. And so this is the only real way. If you want them to get it, it's going to go through this venue. But... But Jesus sees his own self-sacrifice as a willing giving of himself for the benefit of others. Where did sacrifice originate? Well, I am really willing to sacrifice you for the sake of our community. <laughs> See, that's, that's where sacrifice originates. It's like one great general said, you know, this war is going to cost America thousands of young lives. But it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. That is the kind of place where sacrifice originates. It's, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice you. There's maybe a few stuff for the sake of my benefit. Because, you know, I'm, I'm suffering a bit with this God that is angry. But I'll do the sacrifice necessary. Jesus inverts that understanding of sacrifice by saying the only valid sacrifice is when you willingly give yourself for the benefit of others. 
And so maybe it is in Jesus that we understand what sacrifice is for the first time. <laughs> maybe he has brought a conversation just on this one concept, sacrifice. Let's help humanity understand that differently. <laughs> Was that a long conversation that brought us to that place to say, um, hey, let's, let's rethink what you understand as sacrifice. So I want to open it up to conversation. Um, I want to, I'm sure there's lots of questions, and I know beyond a doubt that I'm not going to answer all those questions today. But I wanted to present to you again just an alternative way of thinking of the, the person, the life, the death, resurrection of Jesus. And although this might be new to some of you, what I can assure you is it's been part of the Christian conversation since the first centuries. Okay, the, Most of the kind of substitution transactional views that we've inherited only begins in a thousand after Christ and is then developed further. But these alternative ways of thinking about Jesus has always been part of the Christian tradition and conversation and is still very much part of other branches of Christianity. All right. Maybe I'll just have a sip of coffee as we, as we begin, as you think about your question. Oh, yeah, let me grab a chair. Is that, was that, was there something new in there for anybody? Or if you, did yeah. you know, know it all? Okay, <laughs> some new ideas, thank you. I, feel, I don't really feel more or less, less comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> we do it, yeah, and I can see it more. The history was new. Yes. Yes. They would hear things and then the other nations would distort. Yeah. So all the other myths yeah. distortions. Yeah. And I think what kind of brought those ideas um what, what was a challenge to that, because that's definitely the way I thought as well. And what was a challenge to that is the way in which your critical scholars will go about seeing whether any text is um, authentic or historical, etc., is they'll try and get more than one source to confirm the same idea. And as they started uncovering more and more of the texts, um, it became obvious that these other stories were much older than the biblical stories. Um, not only the uh, material hieroglyphics or any of those things were older, but the ideas seemed to develop and develop up to a place where it's absorbed um, into different cultures. I want to do something read you something beautiful. Um, at the Narkin, 
<laughs> at the Narkin was a um, pharaoh, most probably in the times of Moses. Well, they, all the evidence points towards that. Where's my Bible program? There we go. And um, he was actually one of the first uh, monotheistic pharaohs, which, um, you know, was a big shock. Sorry, let me Psalms. Um, which was quite a, sh a shock in their culture because, you know, in, in Egypt there's the worship of many gods. And, and um, many of the people who studied the archaeology wondered why was there a deliberate attempt to wipe Akhtenaken's name from the records. And what emerged later is that he was the first pharaoh that says, said there is only one god and we are going to just cut off all the other idols, just destroy them. Now you can imagine what happens then. The first disaster, the first time the rain doesn't come when it's expected, it's because we've offended the gods of our forefathers that we've always had for this new weird religion of Atenarch. And, and so as soon as he, he died, they brought back all the polytheistic ideas. Um, it's interesting that Moses, the history that we have around him is there's a whole tradition even within the Egyptian hieroglyphics that Moses was a disciple of Atenarchan, <laughs> was one of the priests of this pharaoh. And they actually describe Moses as, you know, what, they've got a different name for him, but he was a priest that kind of looked after this little colony of lepers. It was um, really an outcast community. But then they discovered Akhtenaken's grave. Um, and it's called the, uh, the Hymn of Atom. And I want to read to you a little portion. Now this is, you know, uh, I think a couple of thousand years before Christ. So it's one of the oldest songs that we've got recorded. And I want to read you a small little portion of that song of Aten that's in his grave in Egypt. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Uh, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers flaming fires. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered me with the deepest, with a garment. The, the waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. 
uh, and on and on the beautiful Psalms 104. Now it, it would be a translation because it would be from the Egyptian, but the people who's actually done the studies have come to absolute conclusive persuasion that Psalms 104 originates as the Song of Atom. And that's still, hey? Atenarchan. Um, I've got one of his books. Um, I think it's A T H E N A. Can, let me let, let me quickly find it for you. Yeah, it's quite easy on my books. Oh, A K H E N. I was completely wrong. A K H E N N A T E N. And this book that I quite enjoyed is called From Akhenaten to Moses by Jan Asman. I think he's a Dutch um, theologian. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how once we actually start digging, um, now in, in most of our scriptures it will say a song of whoever. <laughs> But I think the evidence is, you know, overwhelming that these were beautiful ideas and songs that they made part of their own culture. But, but they weren't isolated, inventing any, everything. They were in conversation, yeah, with the others. Awesome. Any other thoughts, ideas? Yeah. It seems to be implying that actually this was something that God sent mm. so that people would realise that well, A, would, would give them a framework yeah. but also would make them realise that actually they couldn't mm. they couldn't fulfil this yeah. so preparing mm. for what he would give them yeah. life, inner life yes. spiritual life to be able to fulfil that so how do you see that what Paul was saying about the Lord yeah um, uh, I think that idea of, you know, it's a schoolmaster until Christ is, is so valid. Maybe if, if you've grown up in a community where lying and ste stealing is part of the way in which you survive. Um, and there's another community in which lying and stealing is just not acceptable. You, we just don't do it. We're actually just honest. We chat and somehow there, through that honest conversation, we move forward and we survive and we live. So if I introduce somebody from this community where lying and cheating is how you survive, to this community, it might be good to send him to some kind of school in between <laughs> where we kind of teach him that in this new community you go into, that is not going to be beneficial. You're actually going to very quickly be distrusted and discharged from that community. So in this school, let's show you that you are rewarded for telling the truth or dealing honestly and then slowly through that process get them ready for the other community. So 
in that way, I can so understand and, and appreciate Paul's uh, metaphor that the law was the schoolmaster. But while we do not know that violence, and, and by the way, the Ten Commandments, to illustrate this further, is so, so powerful. If, if we understand this mimetic cycle as the process where we, don't, we have a sense of lack of being, and so we don't know what we want, so we pick up our desires from others. Um, actually, the commandments from chapter 10, uh, from commandment 6 to, to commandment 10, is a reverse of the mimetic cycle. How does the mimetic cycle work? I desire what you want. That brings us into conflict. And if the conflict doesn't have anything that stops it, it's eventually going to spill over into violence. And if violence is not stopped, murder is the end result. So we start with Commandment 6, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not um, covet, you know, you shall not covet this, you shall not covet your neighbor's donkey. I like the old King James, you shall not cover your neighbor's ass. I've actually got the ch chapter in the, in the book. But... Um, then it almost gets to the last chapter and it says, uh, where, I can go on and on and on with you shall not, you shall not. What's the real problem? Let's just <coughs> conclude this I shall not right here and now. You shall not desire what belongs to another. And so it kind of sees the very origin of this problem in perverted desire. That it's this twisted desire that brings us into rivalry. That means I want what you want. Eventually I want what is most precious to you. And if I still not have a sense of being, I might even take your life. And, and so all your earliest law codes are codes that deals with the most prominent problem in societies at those times and, and the most prominent problem is violence. How do we reduce violence? Um, so certainly, you know, there's a whole lot of other laws that comes across and, and implications of that. But that's the intention and it is this introduction to a place where we can meet Christ and when you suddenly allow yourself to be redefined, you find yourself in a new law that says, all you need to do is love. <laughs> and if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. If you, if you know you are loved in the first place, you're not going to have the sense of inadequacy that wants to grasp after all of those things. So certainly that, that portion of it, I, I think the law played an important part until Christ. Until Christ. And maybe in a micro situation, there's still uh, room. We often deal with parents that says, how do we bring our children up in grace? You know, <laughs> where they are, and, and I think there's still that place where your heart is gracious, just like God's heart is gracious, but you kind of try and teach that there are certain boundaries and, uh, 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 and what you want to do is introduce them to a self that naturally lives a good life. But those boundaries might be good for a period. Yeah. Hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Thank 
Yes. Yes. So I have no doubt that God is involved in the conversation that is recorded in Scripture. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that this is a story that so blessed me, even as we've been exploring mimetic theory and Rene Girard, I think it will bless you. He began just studying literature, ancient uh, mythology, etc., and then uncovering all that's happened and when he picked up the Bible for the first time it's an unbeliever um, he was surprised that the same stories were told in the scriptures but these points that took him decades to decode like the Bible also says the first civilization was established by the first murderer but instead of trying to give us a nice flowery story that Abel heroically sacrificed himself for, it, it tells us what happened. He was murdered. <laughs> um, so when he started reading this and understanding that there is a fundamental shift in perspective from the biblical scriptures and him being an academic, he actually got all the heads of theology from Yale, Harvard, all the top schools of theology together. And most of these people that were the heads of theology no longer believed in the notion of divine inspiration of the scripture. They all approached the scripture totally academically. This is a human book written by human people and we can understand things of the story. That's the approach of most of the heads of theology. And as Rene Girard started exploring and telling them that there is something unique about the scriptures that I have not found in, in the other mythology, in the other literature, one of the heads of the school said, are you suggesting that we are dealing with a divine revelation? <laughs> and what the thing that this man who comes just from totally different background addresses the heads of theologies of all our top schools and says, that is exactly what I've encountered in the scriptures, is this divine revelation that overturns human understanding of itself, of its society. Now, certainly, his understanding of divine message is very different than most maybe evangelical understandings of what divine uh, inspiration means. And so what I can say is the overall story, the overall conversation, I can see God unveiling and revealing things that was hidden from the foundation of the earth. But at the same time, I can look at some of the text which says, Yahweh told me to cook my children and eat them. Or 
at some point Israel comes to a place and the wrong nation is occupying their land and Yahweh tells them to commit genocide and take out everyone, children, etc., whatever. I can look at that and say maybe there's something historical about it and maybe they had to invoke God as a reason for them to do what we can't imagine had to be done. Um, but is that the God revealed in Jesus? You know, that for me finally is the final voice. That in Jesus we see what God is like. And if I can read the Old Testament story that says his mercies on you every morning, I say, yeah, that, that looks like Jesus. If I read the next passage that says, uh, kill your child and eat him, uh, that doesn't really look like Jesus. And uh, oh, There's a few passages where, where, where it says Yahweh gave instructions of sacrificing children. And I think the one I refer to, that might be in Lamentations 2. So that's interesting. Jeremiah and Ezekiel has two different um, arguments about uh, how, how they tell their people don't, don't do child sacrifice anymore. So Jeremiah begins with the, the thought, who ever gave you this idea? It wasn't, it wasn't God. And, and I think Jeremiah is right. But maybe where Israel got the idea from is from very basic scriptures that says, um, give me your firstborn. In uh, Exodus, now we might say, uh, well, that's spiritual, that is symbolic. No, it actually makes it quite clear. You shall give me the firstborn of your sons. You shall give me the firstborn of your donkey. Uh, you shall give me the... And then later on it makes provision because in the agricultural community where it's quite... A big sacrifice to give your firstborn son. You, you might not survive as a community in that time. He then later on says, okay, if you cannot give me your firstborn, if you don't have enough children, then break the neck of a donkey. So it speaks about actual human sacrifice. Now, and archaeologically, we know this happened. Human sacrifice happened in Israel as well. So Jeremiah comes and his message is, God never said this. It's not God who, who wants this. This is pagan God. Stop it. Ezekiel, interestingly, seems to think, I'm not going to get away with saying God didn't say it because I kind of know this has been part of our tradition for a very long time. So when Ezekiel speaks about human sacrifice, he says, yes, I know, but listen, this is how it works. There was a time where God was very mad at you. And so he gave you instructions that were evil. <laughs> this is actually in Ezekiel. And it's in the book explained much further. And so he gave you instructions that were, our more moderate translation says, that were not good. To sacrifice your children. But now he has changed his mind. He's not that mad anymore, so you should stop sacrificing your children. So even in that, I can see this 
conversation changing. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah, both of them perceive in God a God who doesn't demand the sacrifice of our children. But how they explain why you should stop is different. Does that make sense? <laughs> We're all going rushing back to our Bibles to be able to get another example. For me, that's really, really radical saying that, yeah. that, that was that somehow they just didn't hear God correctly. Yeah. And, um, and the example that sort of jumped to my mind was when we got the first situation of somebody breaking the Sabbath and the guy gets stoned, but he's not straight away, man, it just goes off and really. Tell me the story again. Because it was quite clear that that is what had to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, according to the scripture, there's no way out of here. And that's why it's a trick question. Yeah. You know, if you, if you say no, you're against the scriptures. <laughs> if you say, set they're free, that's just wrong. And if you say stoner, ah, oh, where does that gracious, loving Messiah now? <laughs> yeah. You know, I can maybe just go for it. Yeah. I was just going to do a sideways. Uh, not, it's not really sideways. It's yes. kind of just an observation. Yes. Uh, a lot of Christians feel threatened, don't they, by this, these mythological origins mm. uh, to our Christian faith. Um, they feel threatened by it, and the fact that there are lots of myths that predate Christianity, which mm. kind of say the same stuff, mm. it feels like second. Because Christianity is kind of second hand. Mm. And uh, I have to say, I totally love it. <laughs> I totally love it. And, uh, and you, were, you were quoting C.S. Lewis, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, he goes even further than I think he would. Yeah. Because basically C.S. Lewis is saying, look, all mythology has its origin in God in the first place. Mm. Let's say, for example, uh, this, this idea that people are foundationally good. Mm. And then they need scapegoats. Mm. Even my Mises has its origin in God, doesn't it? God mm. saying, "Hey, I like you. Hey, I like you. Hey, yes. I, like you. I like what you got. I like what you got. Let's us together yes. do something." Yeah. Is that not surely the origin yeah. of the human desire yeah. to like and what each other yes. likes? 
I even even my nieces has its origin. Yeah. Yeah. My nieces is a mythologically foundation stone. Mm. I I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, gosh, I'm not quite sure where I'm going on this one. <laughs> uh, and the idea of sacrifice as well. Yeah. A scapegoat. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus was slain. We yes. about the foundation of the world, but yes. we were chosen in him for yeah. the foundation of the world. Jesus was slain yeah. for the foundation of the yeah. world. Um, and it, it feels to me as if God is just saying, look, you're all in me in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Nothing exists without being yes. in me. Yes, And therefore, everything that goes on, I'm feeling it in, in, in your pain. I'm feeling this pain because you're in me. And, and therefore, I'm going, I'm going to take responsibility for all this. Mm. I'm going to give myself to you because, you know, the, this foundational human condition you find yourself in is yes. so doomed. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're the, this freedom that I, I, I want to engage yes. you with uh, in, in, your, the, in, your, in your early history, you're not yeah. going to have to cope with it. It doesn't you're, abandon you're, us yeah, in that you're, area. You're, you're going to be blind. You're going yeah. to misinterpret all this stuff. This, this foundational goodness of man, which is in my heart. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming this for you. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and so your mythology has this foundational goodness of man. It's born yeah. in his heart. Yeah. Like even the myths, their origin is in him too. So it's not as if the myths are just a human construct and therefore wrong. We have to go out of them. Mm. The myths are born in him in the first place. Yeah. And our, and our foundational blindness causes us to misinterpret yeah. what's going on. Does that all make sense? Uh, and I, and I think beautifully so. Said that. It, beautifully so. That God actually from the very beginning <laughs> was so part of our story and kind of suffered our misinterpretations yes. but, uh, uh, but continued to say, hey, there's another way of being human, of being you and drawing the story forward to maybe unpack overturn some things but even if something that Jesus reveal is the complete opposite of how we interpreted it in the past it's really that contrast that even makes it more beautiful so even our misinterpretations even our confusions becomes part of this painting that has a meaning and, and a view that we would never have had without it yes beautifully said you know, jumping forward yeah Yes. Um, you know, it says, by, by their fruits you shall know them. Mm. So, because I think that people, when, when you're talking about how the church has misinterpreted it, yeah. great hymns like, pardon from an offended God, pardon for sins of deepest. Yeah. So much <laughs> we've got wrong, but the yeah. majority of the church seems to have got it wrong. Mm. And you think, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, the first question is, do you see much light in your travels in, in the world? Because it's changes, obviously. Yes. But looking at the fruit of it, yeah. um, particularly in America, yeah. looking at the fruit of the hard, old-fashioned fundamentalist. Yes. Line, yeah, you become the god you worship. Eh? To, to kill the babies and yes. Yes. Whereas what we're learning more recently is to accept that God's in love with the whole of mankind. Yeah. He desperately wants to bring mankind. Isn't 
Beautiful, beautiful. And I think the end result of this new awakening of seeing a God that is broader than just my tribe, that is um, more compassionate than the way we've interpreted him before, <laughs> are communities that are open to embrace the outcast. Uh, to go to. We didn't get to the resurrection. Do we have another session later? I don't know. But, uh, but you know, the resurrection is that beautiful event where where instead of us building com community on the tombs of our victims, we now have this empty tomb where the whole process has been exposed and the new community is based on people that will include the victims, that will broaden themselves by, and define themselves by inclusion rather than exclusion. Um, so certainly I think that if the fruit is more loving, I think we're getting closer to what Jesus believed. And if the... You know, I think the different understandings of atonement has definitely become part of Christian conversation in, in many circles, uh, in evangelical circles as well. We're starting to explore the idea that maybe penal substitution, uh, if we understand the history, is not the best way of understanding it. Rene Girard's work, you know, it happened on such an academic level for the past 40 years and, and just conversation with theologians on that level but it wasn't really part of the ordinary conversation between ministers and churches but that is certainly starting to happen um, we we find ourselves in that space to say let's take all these ideas that has been explored for 40 years and let's start the conversation here um, and uh, we certainly have more opportunity than what we can make use of to just be with people and, and groups who's ready to explore. So it, it is my hope, and, and I think it's a realistic hope, that it, it is definitely becoming part of the conversation more. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.